1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Think about it. Deep conversations with Uli Baer on big ideas and great books. I am excited to welcome our listeners to the Think About It podcast. And I'm thrilled to have a guest who shares some of my interests in having conversations and who is a longtime teacher, but has a diff- uh, different dimension of his background. I wanna to touch upon Sir so Louis Petridge is tutor at St. John's College in Annapolis, one of the great liberal arts colleges in the country with two campuses, one in Annapolis and one in Santa Fe, New Mexico. And you teach in Annapolis. So first of all, Luis, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast and talking about your program called Continuing the Conversation.
1: Thank you, Uli. My pleasure to be here.
0: So it's uh, exciting to talk to you. So I've listened in a little bit on a few episodes. So um, St. John's College uh, has engaged you and a couple other tutors who teach at the college to... um, have conversations that are now made available in the podcast medium you can find them anywhere on Spotify or Apple anywhere where podcasts are where you have conversations that I think emulate or give a bit of a taste of what a classroom or seminar discussion is like at St. John's and if you can maybe start me out saying a little bit about yourself uh, what I've scanned from knowing what you've done you've been a theater director, you've taught in the countries that comprise parts of the former Soviet Union for a while, Uh, you've developed a couple of programs, and you've been at St. John's for how long now as a tutor teaching there?
1: Uh, This is my 21st year, yeah. So I came back to this country to teach at St. John's in 2002. Uh, Prior to that, as you mentioned, I was teaching abroad for about a dozen years in uh, the former Eastern Bloc and Soviet countries. Because you know when the wall came down in 89, I went over first as a Fulbright scholar and then in other capacities to teach American studies to people who were um, reading books from the West and particularly from America for the first time and without the previous attempt to uh, indoctrinate. So that was very exciting. That really was my career. And I'd probably still be there doing something like that if it hadn't been for well first 9-11 which changed the world and and made it much more difficult to do that kind of work and at that time I was in Central Asia in Kyrgyzstan Uh, but I always knew about St. John's College from my graduate school days and it always was in the back of my mind as the place where I belonged because uh given my educational background I was I did a lot in mathematics and in science and in literature and in history. I was teaching those things abroad. At St. John's, we don't have departments. We don't have majors. We don't give grades. We read the great books across the curriculum. And all the tutors, that's what we call the faculty, teach all of the courses in the course of their career from the ancient Greeks and the Bible up to uh, books of the 20th century in mathematics, physics, literature history, philosophy, and some of the social sciences. And that's really all I ever wanted to do, to be a teacher, which is another way of being a student of those books. So I applied in 2002, and they took me on, and I've been here ever since.
0: I, I love this because normally I start my conversations with my guests and I've had a lot of really wonderful guests and I say, so what's your field or what's your area? And what you just said is that you are actually teaching in such a range of fields. It's just daunting and uh, thrilling in a way. And I would like to hear a little bit about how you said, you knew you belonged in this place. And I think part of what I'm interested in in our conversation maybe is the relation between you as a tutor the students in their classrooms on your campus and the community that you're creating this relationship between the individual and the community and when normally when I have these conversations with many people who are just very distinguished have accomplished many many things but they usually say I'm I'm a philosopher and I also work on I don't know tech or something like that or I'm a literary scholar but I'm also a theater director or something like that but they have two or three things which I already found daunting but they don't have they don't say, oh, I, did, I do mathematics. And if we can just jump right into one thing. So if you're if you're teaching, it's the fall, No, it's the spring term right now in 2023, and you have a group of students arriving on your campus, what is the first classes they take with you as a tutor? And they don't relate to you as, this is the guy who does literature with me. This is the, not the other person and she does math, or this is the person who does physics and she's the person who does other area you cover all the areas
1: yes we do so there are a couple of let's say postulates or assumptions or principles really that we believe in that make this work possible you know one is that uh everybody here uh possesses common human reason and uh, is is therefore able to undertake uh, with the common ground provided by that reason Uh, the reading of these books together. And even though the books are very hard in many cases, uh, they're written for people like us, not for experts. And with the proper kind of patience and humility, but also confidence, uh, and the experience provided by the tutors, that's where we come in, uh, the students can take on Uh, in conversation among themselves and with tutor guidance, works ranging from Euclid's elements and Homer and Plato and Aristotle when they begin as freshmen to Einstein's special theory of relativity and the literature of William Faulkner and uh, the uh, science of quantum mechanics, all in original papers, published by people like Schrodinger and Heisenberg. Uh, and then, of course, you know, that's ancient Greece and that's modern, pretty much modern times, much that's in between. So what's remarkable to me about St. John's College is that we're in a way doing what's kind of impossible, but kind of, all the time. Um, but. You know something that Emerson said that's always stuck with me. I mean, he was one of the writers who I first, uh, you know, read in college as a as at the time as a, a student of math and science, and he was responsible for my switching to literature. Um, he said that you know everything is impossible until you do it, mm-hmm. and that in a way is our our guiding principle and philosophy that we're we can make ourselves equal to it. So it's important, by the way, to say again, maybe that we're the faculty are called tutors, not professors. We don't profess. The work we do in the class is seminar style discussion, experimentation and demonstration in the case of math science. But discussion amongst equals and tutors are simply more advanced or more experienced students. That's how I think of myself. And that's what makes it possible to talk with students in class, uh, because they think of us that way too.
0: And your assumption—you said your assumption is that there's a kind of shared capacity for a reason, and that the students come in with the the interest and enthusiasm to, I guess, and I'm curious what you would say to be confronted by these texts to understand them is maybe too quick, maybe we're skipping something. So what is the experience supposed to be? Because it's very unusual, I saying you're getting 18 year olds, probably on average, most of your students are probably around 18 to yes. read original texts in philosophy or in mathematics and not just an explanatory, very well formulated introduction.
1: Yes, well, so now you're touching upon another thing that I think has always been impressive to me about this place Uh, It takes, you know, the education is open to anyone. Uh, This liberal arts education that is, you know, not focused on any majors, uh, but covers, uh, uh, well, everything. Um, So it takes a certain kind of person who has a certain kind of belief that in the future, uh, they'll be all right. They don't need to have a major to get a job. What what they really need as human beings is the ability to think, to speak, to converse, to write, and to have a a freedom of mind and a confidence about the use of that mind that does not make them subject for the rest of their lives to what experts say, or to doing just one say kind of job in one specific area. So the students that come here have a certain courage about the future and maybe that's one of the blessings of of being in an American and being in America rather than other countries where I've taught where that kind of approach to learning really is very, very rare. It's even rarer than here. Um, But here maybe because this is still comparatively speaking a land of opportunity and of confidence and of stability you know, that people can postpone worrying about the future and what they're eventually going to do and just devote themselves to learning for its own sake. That's a wonderful and a beautiful thing um, that we've got here, but it's it's it takes a certain kind of character.
0: And if they start out, so you enter the room and uh... You have a group of students and you present them with a text and i'm just trying to sketch for our listeners a little bit this experience of and um they know what is on the assigned reading list for the day and he, are you the tutor who covers several different areas so you're not this is what i'm trying to get around you're not a specialized person for them in no. and most i teach at new york university and it's very um kind of segmented, that I teach certain subjects, but I certainly do not teach other subjects at all, where I'm not at all considered qualified. And you, but you come in and let's say, and you are doing this range of subjects with them. So they get to know you also, how you relate to these different things.
1: That's right, yeah. So uh, for example, I'm now doing a freshman, what we call freshman laboratory, okay? Mm -hmm. And we're reading um, uh, sort of the beginning of, modern chemistry and physics. Mm-hmm. Uh, now I've done a lot of courses in my college days on chemistry and physics, but that's not what I got my degree in. I mean, I was an English major and in grad school, I went on to do mostly theater and Shakespeare. So that's, and every tutor has their own, you know, specific background that way. Okay, so we all have our own, you know, prior expertises, but uh, you know I'm teaching uh, Pascal and Archimedes uh and uh on the beginning of thinking about what weight is what it means for a body to fall to the earth because of its weight and, and that's th- in a way the key question of of both ancient and modern physics what causes things to move uh, either on their own and according to nature and you know and we we just start working on that you know from the beginning and you know, the students know I'm not an expert in, uh, in physics, but uh, these books, you know, they've been tried and tested for now, you know, since 1937, when the, the new so-called new program of great books began. Mm-hmm. And over that time, we've really discovered the ones that work in the mm-hmm. classroom, that you can read and really deserve the appellation, great. And that form a coherent, Programmatic whole mm-hmm. that covers four years. Um, so, you know, it's a combination of you know the character of students and tutors, and the choice of the books, and uh, the organization of the program, and and just the way the whole college is set up as a community, in which people can talk to each other mm-hmm. about what they're doing because we're all doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. You see, there are no majors. Or departments that separate us, mm-hmm. and all the upperclassmen have done what the you know freshmen and sophomores are doing, and so they talk to each other across, you know, the, the four years that would normally divide them up, and all the tutors teach throughout the program, so you're you're with a group of you know close to five hundred people yeah. that are all yeah. working together on the same thing, and in the case of the tutors, we're always kind of cycling through these courses in, in, you know, year after year. So we're coming back and rereading and getting better at it all the time. So yeah, when we start out, it can be rough. You're doing, you know, one of my colleagues said, never do, you know, never read this book or teach this class for the first time (laughs) because (laughs) you don't know what you're getting yourself into. But uh, it's wonderful because, you know, you're with the students and you need to have that experience of facing those questions uh, and the difficulties the students are having for the first time. So that you can, and and you don't forget that. That makes you a better guide in the future when you come back to it. Um, So I think all those things make it work. We do the impossible.
0: So for example, if you're teaching Pascal um, again, and it's not your first time, do you have experiences where questions come up in a class where you thought, wow, I've never thought of this or I've never seen it in a text. I've actually taught this text many times. I'm really, I actually am really interested in these questions of rereading books and one is read at a different stage in one's life because we all read things and then we absorb maybe some of it or try to understand, but then we reread them and there's something new in some of these books, really new. read this so closely so carefully so many times and here's something i have overlooked
1: oh yeah it happens all the time i mean that's a a test of a book's uh it's liveliness over the years it's greatness it's eternality or universality so um you know just last uh night i was teaching um uh aristotle's which roughly translates as on the soul yeah so we were Uh, trying to and this was with with a group of um, graduate students because St. John's also has a graduate institute Mm -hmm. which gives a master's of liberal arts uh, to its students but it's basically the same curriculum same Mm -hmm. books uh, same faculty same tutors and so we were reading on the soul and trying to understand what Aristotle means by soul Uh, you know and that's a that's a question that's really dynamite, um, uh, both then as now. And uh, the question came up, well, is a seed? A soul in a a way means something that's, it's what makes something alive rather than inanimate. So plants have souls, animals have souls, human beings have souls, but of different kinds, different types. Um, The question came up, is a seed alive? Does it have soul? And I never thought about that, uh, but it, it arises in Aristotle himself, a student, a student pointed at it, because that's what we're doing all the time: is noticing things and pointing it out to one another. And that's why it's good to have, you know, people doing this together who have, a, you know, diverse perspectives. They notice different things and said, "Well, what about this?" You know, he says seeds have souls, and he also says that, in the case of human beings, um, the seed comes from the man, who puts it into the woman and that's like putting it in the ground and there it grows Mm -hmm. does that mean that men have millions of little souls inside them Mm -hmm. just waiting to be planted and grown and Mm -hmm. you know everybody laughed but i think the answer to that in a way is yes Mm -hmm. (laughs) yes we're walking around we men um at least if in aristotelian terms you know Mm -hmm. potent with souls Mm -hmm. and so that i had never really seen that before but uh, you know uh, it's a, a way of uh, you know understanding the world as filled with potencies of becoming of mm-hmm. things becoming what they are you know purposed for mm-hmm. so that's happening all the time when i teach shakespeare which is in my partic- my particular area of mm-hmm. uh, expertise if you will um that happens all the time with students. Even though I know the books very well, they'll point at something or ask something that just makes me sit up and say, wow, that's really interesting, you know. Um,
0: I think that's that's why many um, of my friends and colleagues and why I myself teach is because you are actually constantly reawakened to the kind of original moment of awe or wonder or admiration or love or whatever you have for this book or even maybe a kind of disagreement but it's kind of reawakened in teaching and it's, it becomes a moment and it's shared with others and I, I've had in this on this podcast I had um, two guests John Callahan who's the literary executor and editor of Ralph Ellison's works and Deborah Plant who's the editor of Zora Neale Hurston's posthumously published book Vera and an editor of Hurston's works and in two separate podcasts, both of them corrected me. I asked them a question about a certain scene in these books and The Eyes were Watching God by Hurston and Invisible Man by Ellison. Deborah Plant and John Callahan both said, Willie, oh, you didn't get the book. And I got something very wrong in a, in a pretty emblematic way. And they corrected me. And it was an incredible moment of actually them opening up a book that I felt I had a certain kind of, purchase on because I, you know, tried to do as much reading around it and I've read it for many years and I tried to prepare for this conversation, but they saw something and opened something up, which means the book was, had much more potential than I had been able to see. It contained something else. And that's one thing because someone else has a different kind of relationship to this and comes from a different place, I think, or has a different kind of maybe experience like the tutor, I guess, in Europe, you have much more experience. And the other thing is, the questions will change with time, certain questions become more pronounced to us than they were maybe or for certain communities. they're more urgent than they were with aristotle i'm gonna keep you there for one moment when you teach the anime I guess of So like um do the questions that are kind of the questions that are being debated quite fiercely in the field of classics right now, so Aristotle's conception of the human and whether his comments on people who are born to be slaves and his comments on women, how they play out in our contemporary world where people maybe need a little bit of extra time to reflect on that to say this is a incredibly important philosopher and yet there are moments in there that are probably very hard for us to assimilate into our lives as any kind of guideposts for how to to live in society
1: yeah so that comes up all the time um you know aristotle's uh teaching of on so-called natural slavery or the natural slave students are fresh they encounter that as freshmen Um, and you know it can be upsetting and challenging to them uh, uh, which is not surprising um but i think the way we uh, handle that or face that is say, OK, look, Aristotle uh, is saying something we don't agree with passionately. Um, but why is he saying it? Where is this coming from? Let's first understand where he's coming from, because he's um, he's he's not just speaking uh, passionately and irrationally. This is part of a larger whole. And if you look at that argument, um, you're probably aware of this, Uli. Um, You know, Aristotle I think says that in in some sense we're all slaves insofar so far as we have bodies and our bodies are supposed to obey their masters which is our reason. So we are both master and slaves in being who we are. And people, I think students can appreciate that and sort of agree with that. And then the next step in the argument is his argument is uh aren't there people who who don't command their bodies they're ruled by them by their desires by their passions by their anger and so forth well those people really are simply slaves then they're not they're not the composite master slave in the right kind of relationship uh well what's to be done with those sorts of people Uh, and Mm -hmm. those are the people he thinks are you know, uh, Mm. the so-called natural slaves. They Mm. haven't learned to command and rule themselves and therefore should be ruled. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's not based on race or any kind of sort of inferiority that belongs to a particular group. Mm. It's based on a a recognition that there are people for whatever reason Mm -hmm. um, who are not capable of, you know, of of mastering things that need to be mastered in themselves. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you know, we try to face those really touchy questions rather than duck them, or um, uh, uh, you know, just appease the students by saying what they want to hear. But let's let's talk about this, mm-hmm. uh, relying again on our common ground of human reason, not trying to you know, silence one another with some kind of appeal to our special experiences of, of this or that. Um, Because, you know, that's, that's one way for conversation to come to a halt when people start talking about their experiences as if that gave them, you know, authority over everyone else. But let's look at what's there, talk about it, try and understand it and, and do so in good faith that, you know, that, we're just trying to, you know, understand the truth about this.
0: Mm-hmm. Can we stay with this for a moment? I'm quite interested in this. So that I think there is in our moment in their culture, and it's always been in this, I'm sure, that people invoke their own experience to claim a certain authority over something, over some area of life, or something. And I think that's actually. Maybe quite natural in a way, quite human in a way. I think it can be politicized really easily, or it can become, as you said, the end of a conversation. Can it also be the starting point where someone says, What would it mean for you, for somebody to invoke their own experience in a way that is not the wrong kind of authority that informs and deepens the conversation understanding rather than says, I'm going to shut down the other point of view because I know this because I've lived through something? You know And I'm kind of interested in, of course, many of the texts you're dealing with are, I think, probably navigating this kind of the, the, the lived dimension of life and the abstraction of life or the abstract. Let's, I'm calling it abstract, but like a more generalized knowledge.
1: Yeah, that's a very good question. I often think about that because I think the that's where what we do becomes something like an art or techne, a skill that one has to learn and pass on to the students, how do we um, acknowledge and incorporate our experiences, which is always there and guiding our response to texts and what we're saying about them? I mean, there's some way I agree with Thoreau on this when he, he says in Walden, you know, we're always speaking in the first person, even when we're kind of formally using third person or objective language. Um, and by the way, we, we try to do that formally at the college and seminar. We address one another as you know, Mr. or as Miss or as mix, and then the last name. We don't use first names. And it's partly because of this that we want to create a formal and, and depersonalized uh, uh, place for discussion. But anyway, the first person is always there. Um, So I I don't have a ready answer to that. It's, you know, it's maybe a certain kind of rhetoric that one has to learn. I mean, how to, you know, make one's experiences part of a discussion of a text in a way that's communicable and acceptable and doesn't upset the common ground that we share. Um, Yeah. So how does one do that? I
0: think about this a lot. How to use one's experience that does grant some authority. I know some, like I'm saying, you have been involved in theater, you're a Shakespeare scholar, you 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 know, you have um you are much more knowledgeable about this and you've been, you've working, you've you have been know, you are working you have you you have taught in Iraq or you know in Romanian countries. That those those experiences I can say these are really valuable for me to listen to you, to learn from them. Or I, you could use them at some point to kind of shut me down and say, you don't understand that, you don't know. You don't know what I've, what I've lived and seen. And I think to balance out what is authority in the service of actually not continuing a conversation versus this deepens, this can, first of all, you can learn something here. This can deepen something. In a way what you know Emerson, Thing your experience is this well of knowledge in a way, but it is you can, Emerson believes you can share that, you can share experience, right? That's like the- that's
1: right. Well, so now you're reminding me of something that's maybe kind of obvious, I should have realized. So, uh, the books themselves contain, I think, the experiences that we would, you know, that we claim for ourselves. So, that would be the first thing that I would say to myself if I wanted to, if I felt prompted to uh, talk about a certain experience, can I locate it in the text that we all share at the moment or have shared in the past uh, and talk about it that way? For example, you know, love. Everyone you know, is interested in that and has is, is probably had it or is going to have that experience. And uh, rather than talk about you know, what it was like when I you know, was in love for the first time, Uh, It's there in Shakespeare, you know, and he he in a way invented it, (laughs) Um, find it there. But another thing that you mentioned that comes to mind is one can put oneself into the text by reading it aloud, especially if it's literature or poetry or drama and give it one's own voice Mm -hmm. and be a real human voice Mm -hmm. you know, that has character and experience behind it. So I often do that in class. I'll read or I'll ask a student to read and you know even if it's something that is you know scientific mm-hmm. or, or objective or abstract mm-hmm. you can still find a way to make it come alive as a human speech with you know a human being behind it who has excitement or who has confusion or who has anger and you know let it show that way um you know, and the other thing that we do, of course, at the college in terms of making experience part of one's learning and in a legitimate and appropriate way, one that's shareable rather than authoritative is, uh, you know, we go to we do lab experiments, we go to the board and try and demonstrate in the form of diagrams and step by step proofs, the things that we're working on in mathematics or in the natural sciences. Those are experiences. You know, mm-hmm. it's 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 live learning in imitation of the original process of mm-hmm. discovery. And you're vulnerable when you're doing that because mm-hmm. you know you make mistakes all the time, especially when you're at the board and um, trying to remember. You know, something, and you're you know making a misstep here and there, and and then you have to, you know, not be afraid and ask for help, and it usually comes, and you just keep moving ahead. So we're doing it all of the time, and it's, like I said, a skill or an art that uh, that the students learn.
0: And is a lot of the work, do you think, is done in the classrooms or labs? Is that where most, or, because they probably have to do a lot of uh... Reading and a lot of studying to be kind of to keep up in a, in a, in a discussion.
1: There's a lot of reading, yeah. There's a lot of studying. Uh, the expectation is that the students who come here want to do that because yeah. they love it. Yeah. Um, and since everyone else is doing it, they can, you know, be in the company of those who are supporting them uh, rather than distracting them with things that, you know, they they might otherwise want to be doing um so you know a lot is expected of the students that way Uh, you know on friday nights for example when students elsewhere might be going out to a movie or 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 just a bar to have a good time uh, we go to lecture we have lectures on friday nights the only time lecture sort of really happens at the college from tutors or from you know, outside guests yeah. uh, on subject matter that often has to do with the program, but not always. And for an hour, it's a public lecture. Afterwards, it's followed by a question and answer period, which could go on for several hours. So that tells you something about yeah. who was who here at St. John's.
0: So There's a lot of work for you too, because you have to reread all these things, right? You can just walk in and say, oh, today it's Pascal, let me grab my book and go to
1: class. <laughs> yes, it is. I'm working all the time, yeah. but I love it. Um, yeah. you know, It means I'm not doing a lot of things that would probably be bad for me.
0: <laughs> uh, that, that's a good way of looking at it. Right? <laughs> and you love it. You're having fun, right? You're yes. Like, yes. To do this. Um, I want to stay with one point because it connects to this project that you are involved with continuing the conversation this podcast or a series that is now available to everybody which gives you a glimpse into the life at st john's and you said you you engage with any question and any topic so there's really nothing off limits and i think to be honest with you i think there's a little bit of a caricature of other colleges and universities i teach at new york university and i spend quite a bit of time at other campuses i do not have this experience that that journalists feel is happening everywhere that no one is dares to speak anymore and everybody is self-censoring. But let's just stay with what you said. You're actually producing part of this conversation, this, this series called Continuing the Conversation, which is framed a bit about saying there's not the tape. We can have conversations about very deep questions. And some of those questions have not been resolved. They're not that. Uh, once you master your Rousseau, you've got to figure out, you know what property is and property is the bane of all of, of our existence or the beginning of all evil or if you've read your Marx or whatever it is, or if you read your Emerson, then you know how to be a free American. It's not, right? So you're interested in when the students walk out of the classroom and you're done with your sessions on Pascal, it's not that they have mastered Pascal and they're done, but they have, something has opened up for them.
1: That's right. Nothing is ever done. Um, uh, I think it's a central premise of the program, which is how we refer to our four-year curriculum, that the conversation of the authors is a continuing one, from you know Plato and Aristotle, the first philosophers we read, all the way down to Heidegger and uh, Du Bois and uh, you know the later philosophers we read. The questions are not; they're hard questions. Yeah. They, they may or may not have answers.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, um, but we're always asking them and, and deepening them and going back to them. So what is soul, anyway? What does it mean to be alive? Right. Uh, to have that starts uh, with Aristotle and continues all the way through to Heidegger. Um, uh, what does it mean to see, to have eyes and to see? One of the conversations I did with a colleague named Michael Grenke, Um Took up that question with the help of Euclid's book on optics, mm-hmm. and uh, it, it raises all sorts of you know, subsidiary questions because Euclid makes it uh, makes in a demonstration, a geometrical demonstration, which uh, claims to prove that we don't see continuously. That is, you, we can draw a line that is mm-hmm. continuous, is not missing any points. Mm-hmm. But we don't see that way. We see that what, we, what our eyes give us is filled with, you know, pointillistic gaps. Mm-hmm. We fill it in. Mm-hmm. Um, so our very experience is one of, of missing things and it requires a kind of creative contribution mm-hmm. or a habitual contribution on the part of us. And that's a question that obviously get, continues through to Kant. And his philosophy, and thereafter, you know, what can we actually see and know? What's really out there, or is it always being, you know, uh, given something uh, by us to make it knowable? Um, You know, I had a conversation that's part of this series uh, with a with a colleague on Frederick Douglass and Lincoln Mm -hmm. on the on the question you a word you just referred to uh, freedom. What does it mean Mm -hmm. when lincoln says there's going to be a new birth of freedom Mm -hmm. in his um you know gettysburg address and Mm -hmm. we talked about that
0: i listened Uh, to that moment and i think your your interlocutor your colleague said a new birth of freedom means we had some kind of freedom but it wasn't the right idea it wasn't the right kind, something had to be really rethought, and uh, it's not that there's never been freedom, but a new birth means there was something in its place that wasn't quite correct or sufficient or something like that, right? I think I remember this moment in your conversation, which is really interesting when you think that such a simple concept or such a ubiquitous word, freedom, you know, we all know what it means, and especially that, you know, okay, this is the 1850s and 60s in America, the abolition of the slave system is clearly what freedom will bring on. And then your colleagues said, well, there had been freedom, <laughs> just maybe not quite the way it should have been thought through or defined in the proper way.
1: Yes, right. It's the first birth uh, you know, turned out to be, well, either incomplete or unsatisfying, or I'm not sure I'd say wrong because Lincoln you know, based his, well, the whole civil war and mm-hmm. uh, and the rightness of that war on the declaration of independence
0: mm-hmm. and the
1: first birth of freedom, but he was worried. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is clear in one of his early speeches at the Lyceum in the, I think in the late 1830s, Worried that with the passing of that revolutionary war generation and the founders um, and the, just the distance from it and the way that, you know, slavery was not petering out as they had expected but was actually spreading and growing that something was really going in the wrong direction and so one had to give birth yet again uh, you know a new birth uh, of that old freedom that had gotten didn't go where it was supposed to go uh, right. as they had thought it would and but i think he wanted to connect it to that to that revolutionary moment so that the civil war was part two in a way of of the revolution of the war for freedom and independence, uh, uh, a real living out of the principles in the fullest sense, otherwise you know yeah. the experiment fails, and right. one might as well go back to you know one might as well go back to Europe from when... in the, yeah, yeah. In, the, in the classroom if
0: it... If you're looking at Douglas and Lincoln at this moment there, in the, I think this is the, 50s, the 1850s, right? And Frederick Douglass gives this uh, well known speech in 1852, What to the Slave is the Fourth of July, where he's very, very careful to say, I actually want to uphold the Constitution and its true principles, and yet it has not been realized. And that's what later we call kind of like a promise or the check has not been delivered, you know, with Dr. King. But if students bring that up and say, you know,
1: Mr. Petrich, I want to talk about Black Lives Matter, and I want to link that to that right now. I want to talk about that today.
0: Does your class, can you shift and say, no problem, we'll talk about that, no, that's your interest. It's in terms of what can someone bring into a conversation, and at what point do you say, this is really important and really useful, but we're kind of sticking with getting Lincoln right first, or Douglas? Yeah,
1: well, that's a great question. You know, I would say it depends partly on what year the students are in, I'm much more willing to do that kind of break away from the text and talk about how this, you know, this concern for Black Lives Matter, for example, um, is related to the text when they're seniors or juniors, and they've had experience and, you know, have acquired the art of conversation and and talking with one another in good faith and with trust. When they're freshmen, I, I much, more reluctant to let them sort of break away because they're all, they come here wanting to do that. And you know, that's in a way their habit from high school. And how you know, do you, I, how
0: yeah. you gently, how yeah. do you gently dissuade youth, which as Aristotle says, have been endowed with enormous amounts of enthusiasm and very little experience. <laughs> <So> <laughs> they have that great advantage. How do you as a teacher, which is really modeling how as a human being and how as a citizen and how as a person, how do you say, not quite the right moment or very important question. I acknowledge and I hear this is what's vitally important to you, but it doesn't quite do what our because it has to be a shared objective. You can't say, yeah. Well, I'm the tutor and I'm this is this is what we want to get out of this class.
1: No, we don't say it never that way. It's more gentle and yeah. leading by example. So, you know, if someone sort of brings something up that swerves away from the current mode of discussion about the text, what I'll usually do is not respond to it, not say anything, see what kind of response it gets from the other students, Mm -hmm. and maybe let it go on for a little bit, and then I'll come back, You know, if it goes on, I think, too long and say, can we get back to where we were a moment ago when so-and-so was talking about this? Because I thought that was very interesting and we weren't really finished with that point. And, you know, when you do that, a couple times they catch on mm-hmm. themselves without having to be told, you know, mm-hmm. you're not speaking, you know, properly now. Um, they learn by that example and because that, you know, they all, I think because they chose to come here in the first place and, and chose a curriculum which is prescribed to them, they don't have choice in right. their classes or what they read, you know, with just one very minor exception in the junior and senior year, um, you know, they came here trusting us yeah um not wanting to sort of challenge us all the time about why are we reading this shouldn't we be talking about this you know so they're willing to take that example i just sketched out and learn from it and by the end of the freshman year most of them have become what we call Johnnies. you know they they're able to talk to each other without swerving off the road all the time into their own you know they're the, the thing that they want to Talk about, And when they get to be juniors or seniors, there's much more room to be yeah. able to connect yeah. the text to current events in an appropriate way.
0: So what's your sense when you follow sort of, you know, even cursory glance at the news will service to you, you know, every day that colleges are, I think, in a quite constructive way confronted with this all the time. So I teach in a very large institution and I set this curriculum and students come, you know, and say, why are we reading this and why is this book not on here and, and let me just make this point a bit sharper and say. Um, one could and should not have a reading list today in any field, which is, for example, all books written by men, and yes, as if women never wrote anything and all this gets very complicated access but. Those pressures on universities to decolonize the curriculum to not actually just read the great white men and all that in some ways, I think that's a productive conversation I think a lot of my colleagues feel it's maybe. The only conversation to have or they think this is the end of education, how do you you're in Islam a different place, because you are into entering into a kind of agreement where people are saying look. We're in this together. We want to understand something on a very deep level, and we know it has relevance. We're not being taught some obscure thing that has no relevance. But that relevance is not the first order, right? Your priority is not to say make it really relevant for your life. You're just you're getting. Mm-hmm. So, what do you think of those conversations happening elsewhere? The pressure on the curriculum—that um, I, actually, you know, I live in that every day, and I think it's—and
1: yeah.
0: I think it's fine. I think it's fine. It's a conversation.
1: Yeah, no, I understand what you're saying. I faced that too, not at St. John's, but when I taught abroad, especially when I taught in Iraq for a year at the American University of um, Sulaimani. Uh, my my students there, mostly Kurdish, but also some Arabs would challenge me almost every day because I was trying to give them some of the St. John's approach. We were reading, doing math through Euclid's geometry and we were doing um, I biology through reading some Darwin, and they had never had anything like this, or ever dreamt of anything like that. And what they were interested in was computers, technology, you know, business and finance majors, and um, you know things like that. And would just they would stop my class in the track, uh, in the moment, and say, Why are we reading this? And you know, shouldn't we be doing something else? And I had to make a case for liberal education and for the value of reading say Darwin because he teaches you something about you know perhaps something about why human beings are violent and this is a very violent part of the world we're now seeing and no. so no. you ju- would be journalists and politicians in this classroom you know ought to be interested in this uh, but at st john's we don't have to do that in a way it's it's in a way it's a blessing but you know in a way i I value what you're saying. One should—I feel myself open to that kind of challenge, and I'm yeah, willing yeah. to take it on. Uh, we have so much to do to understand those books. We don't have, to, you know, the time to continually justify them. Right. But it, and I would say they're all relevant to whatever yeah. questions yeah. this are on the students' mind. They are relevant. I think what you are getting at has to do with what now, you know, people refer to as identity. You know, they want a. A reading experience that somehow oh. reflects the identities of the people who are reading—you know, racial group, ethnic group, religious group, and so forth. But um, you know, and I—the th- way I think of it—is diversity is very good. That's why we are in this together, because we can see different things in this book and point it out to one another. And the more different things we can see and point out, you know, the better. And that's where the diversity really matters. But the books themselves are that diverse. The books themselves are challenging and contradicting each other all the time. Um, you know, we don't. Uh, I, I don't think one has to have uh, artificial means of doing that. Yeah, um, uh, I but, think
0: part of the conversation in universities is part of it. Is I think you're right around. I want to see. Of my identity reflected in the assignments. And the other part, I think, is also that students and faculty very rightly say this particular canon is a construction that has not just followed the principle, these are all valuable, super important books. It also just happens to be what's been handed down and handed down. And then some of our parameters shift. And there's always been the excitement and thrill that. Things are rediscovered and reshuffled, and as T.S. Eliot said, you know, in traditional individual talent, every new book will reorder the entire preceding canon of all the works because we see them in a new way. So he didn't say Eliot didn't say a new poem, new book of poetry, you know, erases and cancels all the previous poems just we see them now differently. You know, we we now understand them differently because what has come later. Gives us a new perspective on that. So I think the second part is more interesting that they're saying the curriculum or the canon has been a construction, hopefully with what you're naming I think is unusual for universities to say that we're entering into a kind of agreement that we're all in this together to explore what these texts offer and where they fall short and where they are rich and yet to be kind of mined. I think that, that's really important. I think sometimes the students experience the university in very different ways and saying, I am have to get through this curriculum, all these books, someone assigned them, I have no idea where they were assigned. There oh. isn't even that reflection. It's just like, these are the books you need to know. Mm-hmm. And then it becomes a very utilitarian, like, why do I need to know them? Because someone said so. And that someone is the work you're doing in the classroom is you're actually enacting that answer, it seems. You're not just saying, this is the book you need to know. It's like, I'm going to make you experience their depth
1: that's it exactly i think um you know we we say to our students at least implicitly uh, if they have doubts about any of this okay well let's go to seminar and put it to the test can we talk about this for two hours for two hours and um not fall asleep not get distracted not you know uh spin our wheels right so every seminar is a test that way and if it works, what uh, has been working since 37, I mean, that's, that I think speaks to um, the point that these books are, are rich and that they do the sort of thing that, that people are wanting to have done by other, these other means that you mentioned. Now, for example, uh, freshman year, we spend a lot of time reading uh, Homer, Plato, Plato's dialogues. Euclid's elements, Aristotle, and you get an image of the Greeks. You might get an image of, you know, the Greeks, whatever that means, as this wonderful, beautiful people who are doing philosophy and and reciting poetry. And even when they make war, it's beautiful, you know, it's heroic and it's all kind of just too good to be true. And mm -hmm. then you read Thucydides, we read Thucydides (laughs) and, you get a completely different picture of yeah. of what it is to be, you know, a Greek person at that time. They're slaughtering each other in the worst possible ways, and it there's chaos and there's plague and there's complete breakdown of moral order and of faith and of justice and and it is horrible. And then you say, well, so it wasn't like what I thought when I was reading, you know, Plato, Aristotle, Euclid, and Homer. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, you know, so he's, he's in a way it's like deconstructing it, yeah. but that's happening right then and there with, with those authors. Yeah. You know, we don't, do we really need, you know, someone else to tell us, you know, that, you know, the Greeks like us had all of these faults and injustices and uh, it wasn't just, be, you know, the good, the true and the beautiful 24 yeah. seven. So yeah. I think that kind of thing is happening all the time within the curriculum.
0: Is there, is there a continuous understanding of the human, though, in this kind of, what you said, there's a kind of realization. Oh, it's not all just you know, poetry and gods scheming you know, at a lofty level. So is there, is, But the conception of the human stays the same in this deconstruction, in this kind of realization that Greek life is not you know, this kind of, uh, let's say, sanitized or idealized version of it
1: yeah, so you're asking are are human beings a kind of constant over time?
0: I just I think it's just a really critical yeah. question because I think the malleability of the of the human and the kind of constancy, I think it's a very vital question for all forms of political life and for our self understanding
1: yeah, I think um if one reads, say, books of the Bible or Homer. Or, you know, others that I can mention and doesn't feel two things, then you haven't really read them enough yet. One, uh, as I think I've been emphasizing so far, these are recognizable human beings that one can relate to and at least partly understand. But two, there's something very strange here that isn't yet recognizable or me. Um, for example, uh, I did a conversation with um, one of my colleagues, Erica Bell on Homer, Homer and the Iliad and war. Yeah. And we spent a lot of time just talking about what it means to see the beauty of war and of killing. Now that's something hard to recognize these days because we're so far removed from that. Uh, and it seems very strange to, to say as one of the characters in that book says that since we're all going to die, eventually anyway, and that death is all around us, there at our elbows. And since they say we are great men, and uh, the only thing really to do that makes sense is to go out and fight for glory and honor and to you know be the sort of men that we were said to be and to face death that way. So that, I mean, that I think is, it's surprising and it sort of makes you reach for things, reach for something in the human that you didn't know you had before you came across it when reading it. Um, This, I think for me, one of the strangest books that requires kind of expansion of one's own dimensions is the books of uh, the Hebrew scripture Mm -hmm. uh, and also the New Testament. I mean, and... And to deal with this character called God, um, yes. uh, which is, you know, a part of what it means to be human, is to have to deal with that character. Um, but it's, you know, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's not simply me anymore or you. We're dealing with, you know, some part of uh, some potentiality, perhaps, of the human being, that we can, you know, make progress towards knowing and you know, increase our own circle, as it were. That's an image from Emerson, by the way, that that um, yes. you know, what human life is, is a, a kind of expanding the circle of one's soul to embrace more and more of what being is.
0: I wanna ask you two very specific question. I love this conversation. So the first question, the second one's on Emerson, the first one is on, you said, if we read the Bible and Homer, two things you think we should take away from that. One is that these are human beings, which in some sense means we can relate, which is in itself just staggering that we can relate to something written down such a long time ago in such, in a culture we cannot even comprehend. I mean, we think we have cultural differences and this is such a vast gulf between us. You think they're human and then you said, they are strange. But they alert us to something very strange in us, or they That's alert right. us to certain things in us that maybe we didn't know. Or when you said, when you read home and you had your conversation with your colleague, the kind of glorification of war, the beauty of war. I think there's this. Let's say what's happening today in the world. There's a lot of admiration in the world for Ukrainian resistance, um, and it's very difficult to reconcile to say that people are willing and sacrificing their lives, their livelihood, uh, everything for a country, whereas, you know, other people would say, this is no longer how the world should be. And we had a lot of people that really rethink and say, I'm against the war, and it has to be and say, maybe something in there touches something in the human that we find in Homer, which is that you are called upon to be a warrior at this moment. You're not called upon to sit this out because it's something in your nature. So, this tr- strangeness, to go back to this, we're human and we're strange. And that strangeness connects us to others who are also strange to themselves. That's so right. I, I'm sharing this. I'm like, oh, I get it. I get it. I, think I actually don't get it. And I'm kind of troubled by this realization that other people are moved by these things. But maybe I should stay with that being troubled for a moment and say, what part of me has been trained to resist or repress or deny this or pretend I don't have this in me? And what part is just so strange that all I have to acknowledge is that other people are very strange to me. (laughs) 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 Which is a big step, right? They're strange. they, They do things I don't get, but... If you take that seriously, I mean, you know, not like they're doing stuff and they're just silly and all this, like I'm taking it seriously. They are moved in their essence and they actually they're actually in harmony with themselves and something I can relate to.
1: Yeah, that's very well put. Um, I mean, it's part of the paradox of what we do at St. John's and I hope it happens elsewhere. On the one hand, you know, we ask genuine questions and genuinely try to answer them, which means, you know, turning our wonder and strangeness into something that we, you know, have a, a, that we know, you know, give it an explanation, give it a cause, make it something that is less strange. But on the other hand, we're constantly you know, reinforcing those questions with other questions and continuing to make it strange. You know, so a lot of times I'll, in reading a book with the students, I'll simply say, I'll read a passage and say, you know, isn't that weird? isn't that wonderful or isn't that beautiful or you know isn't that strange i mean just to point out that you know that kind of reaction needs to be part of our experience of it don't rush immediately into well what does that mean and and how can i sort of assimilate this with what i already know but let it be strange for a while just let it be beautiful just let it be moving and allow yourself to be uh You know in that state of wonder or perplexity you know Socrates is doing that all the time it's his mission in life really is to bring that about and the college in many ways takes its you know chief inspiration from the platonic dialogues and uh, what's going on there with Socrates as he goes around talking to people and asking questions and claiming never to really know but only to know what he doesn't know mm-hmm. um, that is to make the world interestingly strange and worthy of continual investigation mm-hmm. that's what we're that's what we're doing um but combining that that here's the paradox again with really being sincere about wanting to answer our questions mm-hmm. and sometimes we can and sometimes often we cannot but mm-hmm. i think once you ever give up on answers it's no longer serious you know, it somehow becomes more of a game, you know, questions generating questions and, you know, playing the ironic part of Socrates rather than oh, yeah, you know, the yeah, one yeah. who <laughs> really wants to know and, yeah. and yeah. can know.
0: Yeah. You now, yeah. no, I, I think that's interesting. I actually, the ironic part, yeah, uh, it's interesting, you know, the, the, the German romantics, they have a lot of, they're very concerned about irony And the poet Rilke at one point says in one of his letters to the young poet, he said, if you have to use irony, be very, very careful. It is a weapon that almost no one can handle safely. And it'll turn against you because you will have no more belief. Everything will be suspended. And irony is his way of distancing yourself from yourself. And he said, there's not a lot of fault.' So it's interesting when you're saying when it's a question after a question, after a question, it's a kind of a game of speculation That's right you're saying your 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 experience in the classroom is not that it is not to just generate more questions but maybe sometimes to say this remains a riddle to us it doesn't mean we have to now keep on stop thinking or we have to keep on asking questions but something here is actually generates a different kind of energy or i don't, I don't know how to say it you know like it generates something else it's what does it mean for other humans to produce something that can puzzle us in that way.
1: That's right. So that's one of, I think, the challenges that we face at, at the college. The students get good at playing the game,
0: yeah.
1: as it were. Um, uh, and that is at, at asking questions yeah. and seeking an answer, but then asking more questions, yeah. at reading later authors who debunk earlier authors, I, and of uh, you know, of experiencing this sort of heightened expectation for the good, the true, and the beautiful that they experience as freshmen. And and then having it, you know, disappointed, not because they failed in their work or anything, but because as they read more and more, uh, they realize that, you know, know, the previous philosophers, you know, who are the greatest minds who have ever lived and written um, Mm -hmm. have been, uh, you know, corrected or rejected or debunked by the, the ones that come after them. So where are you after four years when you're a senior and you've done all of that kind of work yeah. and have, have come to the point where you're reading authors who are debunking even reason itself, which you know I said at the beginning is is you know our common ground which makes possible what we do here, you know, thinkers like Marx or like Nietzsche or like Freud and who are pointing to you know other things, that are, you know, ruling over reason itself. And and that would seem to debunk even the methodology and the pedagogy that we've been practicing. So it's really quite a challenge to the students to go through that experience. And it sometimes worries me or puzzles me as to, you know, what they go out into the world thinking, uh, you know, what state their soul is in, in facing the world uh, after this education. I would like to think that, it's made them, as I was saying confident with a certain kind of you know you know the freedom so that they won't feel that they have to rely on experts to tell them you know what to do about this thing or that thing or what to think um, but you know in terms of you know the the spirit uh, and the happiness and their ability to choose, say, a proper mate in marriage or a proper friend, uh, a proper line of work. Um, you know, I hope they'll have, they'll learn something from being at the college to make those decisions, those simple basic decisions that you know really spell the difference between uh, a life that is happy and satisfying and one that is not.
0: I think it's a really great question to end with to say, so when you're introducing the great skeptics, so Nietzsche, Freud, Um, you know, Heidegger in a certain way, you sort of turn reason on its head to say, and there's really no basis. And and in some ways, I think you're saying, once you introduce that kind of skepticism, what are you left with? And I think it's very important to say, Nietzsche is the philosopher of affirmation. He's the yes-sayer. He's actually the one who wants to celebrate life all the time. Freud, in a way, would say, I'd rather disillusion you now, and then we have the capacity to construct meaning in our life, the relationships and these things, then live you let you live in this illusion that mm-hmm. there is some guarantee for happiness and it'll just come to you in some ways. It activates you as an agent in your own fate. Um, and what Richard Gorty would say something like, it allows you to construct a livable story for yourself. And I think that moment, but I think you're right, you don't want to get them to this kind of precipice and then, and then there's a niche and to lead you into the kind of the abyss of the total skeptics or the mm-hmm. deconstructionists and there's nothing anymore. I said, no, actually that can, can become a moment of, that actually gives you the power to construct a coherent story for yourself in life with others. Yeah. Rather well, than I, accepting these things from other people, sorry.
1: Yeah, I like that way of putting it. I mean, I myself am very, actually rather fond of, of Nietzsche and the life affirming um, quality, uh, you know, the having to say yes to every moment as if it were eternal. Right. And, but yeah, I think you're, that does mean taking responsibility for creating for yourself, uh, uh, even perhaps in the act of seeing, perhaps yep. it's rooted in biology and reality that human beings have to create for themselves you know, responsibly, here's where the Freud might come in, facing reality, not ducking it, but within that, uh, obeying that responsibility, creating a meaningful, fulfilling life for themselves, which affirms every moment, you know, right. as a creative moment of yes. Right,
0: right. I I want to this- add, I'm gonna ask you one question, if I may, if I'm a student in your class, so this is a very specific question and you'll get it in one second about Emerson and maybe it relates to the essay circles. And it's a very specific question and something I'm interested in. So the do witness doing is in this podcast because I have you here right now, it's really my own thing. That's
1: fine, I love your questions.
0: So Emerson, <laughs> so Emerson in a way, I think this is my rough understanding, says ultimately we as humans, we have this capacity to actually correspond to the world in the following sense that we can respond to it we can articulate our experience of it. We are continually awed by it, but we ultimately have the skills, capacity, facility of language to express it. And then I'm gonna give you this question now. And the other person who is right next to Emerson, it's Emily Dickinson, same moment in time, writing out of the same world in a way, of course not having been given the same type of education. And Dickinson, I think is very different and says, We are continually outmatched by reality. Every blade of grass, every grasshopper, every bobbling, every little bird, every sunrise. It's just so much that all I can do in my poetry is bear witness to the effort to try to say something. But we are outmatched constantly. And actually what's human is that we are constantly summoned to give voice to this, but the poets Only thing is not to give full expression. And that's why maybe in a very simplistic way, Emerson writes philosophical essays and sermons and Dickinson writes these very bizarre poems of radical originality. And I, and my question is really, this is really a very specific question. Am I kind of right? I think Emerson gives us this kind of sense. We are, we are a good match for the world. You find this everywhere So Rilke, the early Rilke says, we are perfectly equipped to be placed in this world, which is our habitat. And Dickinson says, "We are constantly outmatched. Every time I open my eyes, when I see anything, and all I can sort of articulate is my effort to say to to acknowledge that fact." And you see, you, you know, it's a it's a little bit too sharp a distinction, but you know what I mean. There's a way in which poetry, I think, touches on, and it doesn't have to be Dickinson. It can be Shakespeare, who says, "All I will give you is an is an, is a person on stage." trying to articulate their experience.
1: Well, I think the two of them together are a very nice way of summing up a lot of what we've been saying. There are two sides of of the experience of education and self formation, the Emersonian side, which is up to the task of giving expression to what's out there by meeting it with what's inside you. Uh, With gusto, cheer, and confidence and you know even in the face of the death of his son and uh, a personal tragedy and loss he can manage to turn that experience into you know another uh, affirmation of life whereas dickens so that would be the, you know the side of of what i was calling earlier you know ask asking the questions and answering them or seeking to answer them with confidence that that's possible. But then there's the strangeness, the mystery, the way in which one is always just stopped in one's tracks and has to you know, consent to a kind of silence in the face of it where you don't have the word. Maybe in her case, you have a dash you know, or a, yeah. those, those punctuation marks that she loves to use where something is happening, I think, in those marks you know, or you get to the end of the line in her usually very terse, short poems, uh, a much shorter line than say a Whitman line or even a Shakespeare line because something is is holding you back. But I don't think it's it's necessarily a tragic uh, feeling in Dickinson. I think it can be (laughs) awe, maybe that's what you're getting at, awe in the face of an experience of Either God or the absence of God.
0: Right. Um, right. I, I give you the quote of Dickens never mind because it's just fun. It's, it's so helpful what you just said about these two modes, which are kind of maybe the modes we always inhabit, both of them the one that leads us to speechlessness and the other one that actually also motivates us to express ourselves. It's, yes. And so Dickinson has this line she says, Wonder is not precisely knowing and not precisely knowing not. A beautiful but bleak condition. He has not lived, who has not felt. And then it goes on. And in some ways what she thinks that wonder is not precisely knowing and not precisely knowing not. Yes. This this Dickinson, which at the hyphen, when she says it's not precisely knowing and not precisely knowing not, the repetition She's saying it without saying it. She's saying, this is the condition we're in. And it's a bleak but beautiful, it's beautiful but bleak condition. We're in the speechlessness, we are contained there. And I think what, I mean, what I get from this conversation, what I want to do is go to college at St. John's.
1: Uh, Please do. (laughs) I do, I do. (laughs) Would you like to come and give a Friday night lecture?
0: I mean, this, I really, this is what I'm, I'm trying to work this out. So somehow I, you know, I, I love Dickinson, but it seems almost stupid to say something like that because Dickinson is not containable. You know, I'm not, I don't like, I don't even know what to say, but for me, this moment when she gives expression to something that is actually speechlessness, it's just, it takes you to a place I feel. Yeah. it takes you to this place, right?
1: Well, I think that's, that's it. You know, I, I can't tell you how many times I've felt in class, especially when doing poetry or dramatic literature, or even philosophy where, I want to stop the discussion and, and say to the students let's just read this aloud because, I know. I, because you know there it there it is and is and right, we're, we're not we're not we can't do better than that yeah, yeah. and let's just try and hear what's in those words yeah. and you know with dickinson you could i think that's entirely appropriate
0: yeah it has it and it has an incredible depth that you're thinking these very simple words just a few words here and sort of it opens up another something else yeah so I just want to um uh you can remind our listeners so this is so you have a series of conversations called continuing the conversation so you can find that under that title or St. John's College um that's right Available everywhere. There's a series of conversations. They will be released over the spring of 2023. So ultimately they'll all be available easily. I think they're also on the St. John's website. Um, That's right. They'll be
1: they're being released in stages starting this month all the way through June. There'll be uh in that in that uh four month period about 20 conversations. Uh, and they're all over the map in terms of I, their content.
0: I think one of my former students and beloved friend, Ron Wilson, who teaches at the Santa Fe College, he's actually one of the guests. So he studied with me at NYU a long time ago as the college student. And then went yes. off to Japan and got his degree at Princeton in Japanese literature. And now teaches at St. John's. And, says, and he says to me sometimes, they keep you really busy. I'm doing your clip today. I can't talk. And I'm like, I get it. <laughs> That's, <laughs> That's right.
1: <Japanese>. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. All right.
0: So, Lewis, thank you so much for being on the podcast. So, again, this was a conversation with Lewis Petridge, who is the, a tutor at St. John's College in Annapolis, uh, hosting, continuing the conversation with some of his fellow tutors uh, who teach at St. John's. And um, so I invite all the people who listen to Think About It podcast to tune in and subscribe to that series at St. John's as well. I couldn't have um, thought of a nicer way of spending a Friday afternoon.
1: Thank you, Uli. I enjoyed it a lot. Let's do it again sometime. <laughs>
0: absolutely wonderful. Yes, and we get like, and I actually because like I have you in front of me, I was like, wait, I have so many more questions, and you've read everything.
1: <laughs> All right. Well, choose a book or a topic, and we'll do it again.
0: <laughs> I will absolutely do that. Thank you so much. Okay. okay. Bye bye. Bye bye.